0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hello. Hey, Professor Ross. This is uh, Ryan Grimm calling. How you doing? Hi, how you
2: doing? I'm please call me Loretta.
1: That's Loretta Ross speaking. She's an iconic and iconoclastic movement leader for decades. The kind of co-creator of the term reproductive justice and one of the leading activists in the field. I spoke to her for an article that is now out in The Intercept that she described like this. So uh, here you're writing
2: about the call-out culture and you've got a lot of people in the nonprofit industrial complex who are being destabilized because of it, but they don't want to speak on the record.
1: And I'm going to be joined today to talk about it by my editor, Nausicaa Renner, who I'm going to mostly turn the microphone over to. So, Nausicaa, uh, welcome to Deconstructed.
3: Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for being here.
1: Yes, it's my pleasure.
3: So I'm really excited to talk to you about this today. It's one of those pieces that you work on, and you're like, this is a theory of everything. This explains what's happening in the progressive nonprofit world to a T., But it's also a story that really hasn't been told by anyone. I think because a lot of people don't want to talk on the record about it. They don't want to speak out publicly. It's kind of a taboo subject. So I wanted to start out by asking you, do you agree with that assessment? And how did you start to kind of see the pattern and piece this together?
1: Uh, So yes, yes and no. A lot of people have talked about this kind of general theme. And if you narrow the theme down to, say, call-out culture or cancel culture, it's basically been fodder for endless internet debates, disputes, fights, what, what have you. Uh, more serious attempts at probing what's going on have been done by Loretta Ross herself in a Widely read a New York Times article back in 2019, where she said, "I'm I'm a black uh, feminist, and I think we need to call people in rather than call people out." Uh, Adrian Marie Brown, who's a kind of abolitionist, uh, who's a, the former executive director of the kind of radical the Ruckus Society, she wrote a piece in July 2020. The title was something like "My Unthinkable Thoughts." It was you know, widely read, kind of in the in the abolition, police abolition, prison abolition spaces, and on on the left. So it's not at all like people haven't probed this topic, but I think what we're bringing to the fore for the first time is the effect that it's having on progressive institutions in Washington. And so I think for so long, this has been an abstract conversation. Like, is cancel culture a real thing? Is cancel culture not a real thing? If it is a real thing, is it just uh, an excuse for people who want to you know, be racist and transphobic and misogynistic and not be criticized and not be held accountable for it. And, and And you go round and round with these debates, but what this brings out is that while all of that has been going on, organizations have been just utterly and completely imploding. And this may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. It's not a value judgment to say that they are collapsing as a result of this cultural conflict that's going on inside these organizations. And so we spoke to, or I I spoke to, you know, more than a dozen, you know, current and former uh, heads of major nonprofit advocacy organizations to get their take on what has been going on over the last couple of years. And many of these people have been leaders in this field for, for decades and have been, you know, supporters of the kinds of movements that have kind of transformed into the pushes against them. Like, many of them have fallen victim to the forces that they helped unleash.
3: We should say that, although I would think that you and I are neutral about it, a lot of the people that you spoke to are are very upset.
1: And I'm not so sure how neutral I am either. I have to acknowledge my place in this universe. And one reason that I could write this story, in fact, is the fact that I'm now I'm 44 years old, so there's a generational uh, component to it. I've been in Washington for a long time now, which makes you very likely to be white uh, because the, you know, diversifying of the progressive space only really began in earnest, say, 10 years ago. You know, pre-2011, pre-2012, a lot of these institutions and a lot of the media just completely white-dominated to a, to a degree that is striking when if you go back and look at the photos, of you know, the staff photos or anything like that. And so there has been genuine progress uh, made on that front. But so because I've been doing this for so long, I know these people. Like, I, I know the people who have risen up through the ranks of these organizations, and I've known them, many of them, you know, since they were in their 20s or so. And so, because this is such a forbidden topic, the fact that I have known them for so long, I think, enabled them to kind of speak openly and, and trust that the fact that they spoke openly, you know, would not, be, would, would not become public, it would not be used against them, either in their current Jobs which are outside of you know, what they used to do, or you know, in many cases they're still running these organizations, and so they just certainly are not just going to talk openly because it ju- would just invite more turmoil.
3: I think we should give people a more detailed sense of what we're talking about. Do you want to describe what happened at uh, the Guttmacher Institute?
1: Guttmacher, yeah, this is a this is a good case study, and there are a couple of different things. That happened at Guttmacher. But we begin the story uh, with a Zoom meeting that was hosted in, what, the first week of June 2020. June
3: 2020. So two months, three months after lockdown started.
1: Right. And so this this was all reported in, a, in an outlet that I actually hadn't heard of before, which is called PRISM, which is focused, it seems like, exclusively on covering kind of social justice, maybe organizations or social justice activism. And the, the story was written based on a ton of sources from inside Guttmacher, staff inside Guttmacher who shared this with PRISM. And essentially what happened across institutions, whether you're talking about uh, nonprofits or for-profits or educational institutions, you name it. You know, June 2020 was a, a time of serious reckoning with white supremacy. Nobody who lived through that time period is, is going to forget that. Uh, there were you know, huge and positive developments that emerged from that reckoning. It began for many organizations on Zoom, because this was still at the height of the lockdown. And so the DC office of Guttmacher huddles together in a Zoom, a woman named Heather Boonstra, who was a vice president of something or other, uh, who basically, you know, lobbying that type of type of thing for Guttmacher, which is an abortion rights kind of research and advocacy organization, but with a real emphasis on research, she hosts this meeting. And she says, "I want to ask everybody how they're, you know, finding equilibrium. Like what, how are, how, how are people feeling?" And the staff starts very quickly talking about, which is all non-black, as they, as the article makes clear. They start very quickly talking about internal workplace issues. They say that we, we ought to be loosening deadlines for workers at Gutmacher. We ought to be giving workers time off with pay without cause. You know, for what you know, for people who need as much time off as they need should be able to take it. And eventually it, the article makes clear that Boonster pushes back and says, look, and maybe you have the quote in front of you, but she says something like, I'm here to talk about George Floyd and all of the African American men who are being beaten up by society. And what you know basically what, what can Gutmacher do.'" to be a part of this kind of social reckoning that's going on right now. You guys are all talking about your workplace problems. You're being self-centered. Like she hits them pretty hard.
3: Looking back, like, just to pause on the timing of it, the beginning of COVID was so incredible because it simultaneously like eliminated all of our freedom, but it also kind of demonstrated that society can really turn on a dime in a way that like I don't think that I was aware of before like everything can change in a week and so there was that and then George Floyd came in and it it was sort of like yes like this is the moment of change but because we were all at home and because we were all so focused on the ways that like our individual lives were changing it's not the whole story here for sure but I I feel like I see a lot of that.
1: And you add into that the many weeks of of lockdown and you know deeper into the lockdown people became more accustomed to what locking down meant and people started also then developing uh, rituals and ways to to meet outside people started breaking the lockdown and socializing again but for a substantial amount of time you know through april and may there were many many people in the liberal space in particular because we should be clear that like within 2 weeks in red areas of the country, the lockdown was you know, more or less over. And so following those lockdowns as rigorously as people did, created also a lot of pent up anxiety because there is, at the same time, you have, and particularly in New York, people say they'll never forget the sound of sirens, just constantly taking people to to their deaths, That you know, the, the morgues running out of space for bodies. And so you have isolation, topped with existential anxiety. Uh, nobody knew where this was headed. Like there was, you know, people understood that it mostly, you know, the fatality was worse for the elderly, which doesn't mean it's there's no, n- nothing there. But there were also lots of stories of people in their 30s and 40s getting intubated and dying. And so you couple all that with this absolutely searing video of this monstrosity and this, this murder of George Floyd and you have people asking, well, what can I do? Like, how, what can I do about this?
3: And I remember that the George Floyd protests, those were some of the first times that I went out under lockdown. And it was like, it felt very exhilarating and also scary to be like so close to people, you know, in front of the White House, like seeing all this energy kind of bubbling up. It was, it was pretty incredible.
1: And it, this is also the moment where the public health officials lost a lot of the more skeptical people around the country when they started saying that racism, systemic racism is more harmful to your health than COVID. So therefore, that's why these rallies are okay. But the anti-lockdown rallies were, you know, were not okay. Turns out being outdoors was pretty safe. Yeah, we didn't,
3: we didn't know that. We
1: knew-ish, but didn't know, you know as much as we know. Now, but but yes. So, just to get yeah.
3: back to Guttmacher, how did the staff then react to what Boonstro was saying?
1: So, the staff leveled a number of complaints, saying that this was, you know, basically creating a hostile and uh, toxic work environment. And the HR department, with the uh, support of the board, uh, launched a, a investigation into this. Uh, the investigation eventually concluded that Booster was not at fault, that, no, that the organization was not at fault here, that this was a difference of opinion. We could read, I'll, I'll read their, their statement. And they said, what we have learned is that there is a group of people, and this was a statement to PRISM, a group of people with strong opinions about a particular supervisor, the new leadership, and a change in strategic priorities. The new leadership, by the way, was a, a black woman, a lifelong activist, Dr. Herminia Palacio, And so they said, those staff have a point of view. Complaints were duly investigated and nothing raised to the level of abuse or discrimination. Rather, what we saw was distrust, disagreement, and discontent with management decisions they simply did not like, unquote, which is kind of a perfect framing of the management's view of a lot of these controversies. And the prison reporter was able to reach out to uh, Pamela Merritt, who's another black woman, who's a, another leading uh, reproductive justice activist who's on the board of uh, Guttmacher. And they, they note that this, was, this interview happened while the Supreme Court was hearing oral arguments in Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the case that the five Republicans on the court are eventually gonna use to overturn Roe. And she gave an extraordinarily delicate response to them and i think in the delicacy you can see, you can sense some of the kind of energy and fear in this that's that's behind a lot of this i'll i'll read the whole thing she says i have been in this movement space long enough to respect how people choose to describe their personal experience and validate that experience even if i don't necessarily agree that that's what they experienced and then she adds it seems like there's a conflation between not reaching the conclusion that people want and not doing due diligence on the allegations, which simply is not true. I mean, it's just a beautifully parsed and, and respectful way of saying you did not suffer the things that you're saying you suffered. You're saying there wasn't an investigation. There was an investigation. It just didn't find what you wanted to find. And so you're complaining about that.
3: And I realize that you're upset, but...
1: And I realize that you're upset, and that's valid, and that's legitimate. But I don't agree that the things that you say happen to you happen to you.
3: But it didn't end there, right? Like, now we're into Roe v. Wade is probably about to be overturned, most likely. And what's happened since then? Has Guttmacher been organizing around it? Where are they now?
1: Right. And, and to set the context even further back, so in 2017, Guttmacher was uh, getting some staff complaints about its coalition work with the ACLU, which was getting its own complaints from staff because of its defense of the Unite the Right rallies, right, to have a march in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, which led to at least, you know, one woman was killed, a counter-demonstrator was killed, and they were also objecting to Guttmacher's, you know, association with, uh, say, Planned Parenthood, and they were all pro-choice America, least, which they saw as emblematic of kind of white feminism, and that they wanted to bring more kind of reproductive justice organizations into the fold and give Guttmacher more of a reproductive justice kind of lens to its work. And so they brought in diversity consultants. They conducted interviews with more than 100 employees. Uh, they, they put in place kind of new new practices and procedures that predated the, the blow up after George Floyd. All of this comes to a head in December of 2021 when the PRISM article finally comes out. All this is kind of cheered on. By this uh, this organization called ReproJobs, which is uh, interesting in its own right, which has a has a very widely read Twitter feed and Instagram feed on on the left, and and, and advocates for you know worker rights within the reproductive justice and and abortion rights movement. And December that that story breaks, they begin to start organizing a union. On May second, they finally announce that they have. Uh, decided they're, you know, they've gotten collected enough cars, enough signatures, they're going to go forward and demand voluntary recognition. That very night is when Politico reports that Roe is being overturned. That didn't slow things down. The, the last month has been a tense fight between Gutmacher Guttmacher staff and Guttmacher management over the terms of unionization. Uh, it's a long story, but the staff has rejected voluntary recognition because management insisted that they... Pledge not to strike in exchange for, you know, recognizing the union. And so here we are.
3: And like, you know, when, there was a point in working on this piece when you were like, is this a story? Isn't this just like the caricature of the left, that the left is always navel gazing and thinking about itself and thinking about its own structure and workshopping its own process? And that is to some extent true. But I think it seems to be worse now and the real difference is that there's a very small window of opportunity in Congress that we have right now that is going to be likely, hopefully not, but likely going to be closing soon. And I, you know, the, a quote that I wanted to pull out is from a pr- progressive congressional staffer who said, I've noticed a real erosion of the number of groups who are effective at leveraging progressive power in Congress some of that is these groups have these organizational culture things that are affecting them. Because of the organizational culture of some of the real movement groups that have lots of chapters, what they're lobbying on isn't relevant to the actual fights in Congress. Some of these groups are in Overton mode when we have a trifecta. And then they go on to, to pull out Sunrise, which is doing a, a Green New Deal pledge, and the aide says, the climate bill is still on the table. Like, what are you What are you doing? You should be lobbying around that, basically.
1: Right. So, right. O- what Overton mode means is, you know, you are making maximalist demands that you know aren't going to be met by the institutions of power, but they're going to expand, you know, what is possible in the future.
3: Right. It's about changing, like, the public's tolerance for radical right. policy. And
1: the... The aid is saying that's that's all well and good, and and, and they're saying like, look, if, if there were endless resources, then that would be great. But there is literally a climate bill, you know, on the table right now that is being negotiated, and we are months away from losing our majority, perhaps for ten years or more. And the the aid also mentioned that you know at the height of uh, the negotiations last summer over Build Back Better, that the Sierra Club vanished from the, the private and public conversation because they were so caught up in turmoil that the leadership's, that the entire institution's energy was all being directed inward. And you know, this is at a time where the climate movement is saying we have 10 years left to turn this thing around and we might have just a couple months left on a democratic trifecta. And they're all just utter, utterly consumed by these internal debates
3: which is where the anger comes from and it it gets framed as a employees versus management typical sort of battle but there's there's actually a lot more there i think <laughs>
1: about this for this story, because I wanted to look back at, and not not to pretend like this is necessarily the first time that this has ever happened. And you know, a couple of people that I spoke to for this story mentioned that after 1968, you know, after Richard Nixon was elected uh, president, you had this kind of collapse and demobilization of of the left. There was still a war to protest but the, the demonstrations against the war never reached their peak, which they hit around 1965 or so. Uh, you had major organizations like Students for a Democratic Society dissolve themselves and turn themselves into a terrorist organization, the Weather, Weather Underground, which Mark Rudd was a part of. Like he helped to dissolve SDS. He, helped, he was active in SDS, helped dissolve it, and then joined the Weather Underground as a domestic terrorist. And he was a fugitive for, for seven years you know, after the, after that town, after the townhouse uh, blew up, ended up, um, ended up going to, you know, serving a short prison sentence himself. And so these things do go in waves. And so as a movement loses focus, as there's less leadership and there, as there's dissatisfaction, disenchantment, uh, you do see a lot more infighting. And so in, in, nine, in 69, 70, and through the 70s, you did see a ton of this. Uh, Loretta Ross told me, that you know, she remembers calling it trashing. There's a famous article from the late 1970s in Ms. Magazine by Joe Freeman called "called trashing," which was kind of the first to really um, an- analyze this. Trashing is is the 70s era version of what we would now call, call you know, calling out or canceling or whatever else. And so, it's it's fair to say that there are new things happening because we didn't have Slack, we didn't have Twitter. The world is different that we didn't have the climate apocalypse, uh, looming climate apocalypse that we have now, but it's also fair to say that there are some similarities to what has uh, happened before. And one of the things that Mark argues, and this goes to the point that you were just making about these groups being in Overton mode when there are actual wins on the table to possibly be had, his, his argument, and I heard this from a lot of people as well, is that there's something about the left and its hostility or its skepticism of coercion uh, that just makes it allergic to power, that it just doesn't want to be in power. As, as one person said, if you're not uncomfortable all of the time, then you're not in a coalition because being in a coalition means that you are in coalition with people who disagree with you on some things. Because if they didn't disagree with you on some things, they, they would, would be, be in, in the same
3: group. <laughs> they'd be in your group. Yeah.
1: Right. And so if you're never feeling discomfort, you don't have a coalition. If you don't have a coalition, you don't you don't have power. And he says it this way.
2: We're all engaged in something which is it's much bigger than any one group. And we're all on all sides of it, including the privileged and the, and, the, and the oppressed. We're all sort of players in this historical drama. And so the most sophisticated uh, of of the oppressed, I think, are the people who recognize the need for solidarity and coalition building, uh, for power. My guess is that basically nobody on the left wants power. We're allergic to it. It's not in our DNA. Mm -hmm. We don't like coercion. We don't like hegemony.
3: And I think this is part of the problem, too, is that people are looking at their workplaces, and I think one of the organization leaders said something to this effect, but they they want their workplace to be everything for them. Like, they they don't see that your political hearth your Your movement home, as some people say, is not the same as necessarily where where you get a paycheck from every month, or hopefully more mm-hmm. often than every month. But I think yeah, the, the quote th- said something like they want they want it to be like a, to have healing sessions and they want it to be their therapy and they want it to be. Uh,
1: oh, I found it. I found I found it here. And yeah, this is this executive director. It was was saying something that was echoed by a ton, a ton of others. And I think would, and, and plenty of staff would say like, yes, this is this is right. This isn't exactly how I would couch it. But he said, a lot of staff that work for me, they expect the organization to be all the things. A movement, okay. Get out the vote, okay. Healing, okay. Take care of you when you're sick, okay. It's all of the things, he said. And, he, and then he said, can you get your love and healing at home, please? He said, but I can't say that. They would crucify me. And so he, he's saying, like, he, he wants people to see this as a workplace and as a, as a job that is where people are collectively working together to accomplish the mission of the organization. And that rhymes in an interesting way with, a, with an anecdote that I included from the 2020 Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, the, ahead of the Iowa caucus in that year, uh, there was a kind of staff uprising there over all sorts of different issues, which I've written about before. And, you know, it it ended up the, the uprising ended up being squashed by other workers. Uh, And partly because they had this workers, they had a union, the people leading the uprising had to get a majority vote. They didn't have a majority. Most of the, you know, the majority of the workers in Iowa said, no, our purpose here is to, is to win the Iowa caucuses. Like the future of the world depends on this. What are, like, what are you doing? This is not a, you're, and also, by the way, this job ends. We know when this job ends, on the, after the caucus. And so why are you going to throw away, you know, the chance to change the future of the world over the next several weeks of working conditions? And so when Bernie Sanders, you know, got wind of like this uprising, which was not the first of the uprisings, he's relayed to his leadership staff. He said, quote, stop hiring activists. It's so funny. And that's from Bernie Sanders and he said just hire people that want to do the job. Like is that we we pay well, we treat people well, it's a good cause. Get people who want to do the job. Stop hiring activists.
3: Yeah, I was kind of struck in reading uh you know the the iterative drafts of this how the solution in the piece or maybe not solution but kind of the the ray of hope in the piece is that workplaces will return to being just workplaces and that, you know, leaders will kind of start stepping in and saying, like, no, like, there is no space for this kind of thing.
1: I don't think it will be the leaders, though, that can accomplish this. I think it has to be the other workers. And one person I spoke to used the analogy of a a demonstration. So you have a nonviolent demonstration. You've got thousands of people there. A handful of anarchists show up and they start to pick up rocks and throw rocks at police or they throw rocks at cars, whatever they're up to. And they're not going to listen to the police telling them to stop throwing rocks. They're also not going to listen to the lead organizer of the rally. You know, Al Sharpton can come down there and tell them to stop throwing rocks. They're not going to stop throwing rocks. The way they stop throwing rocks is if the entire crowd turns on them and says,
3: stop. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's this is not why we're here. This is not your neighborhood. We are here for X goal. This is undermining our goal. Stop. And when that happens, those anarchists or feds, half the time they're feds, they stop because of the pressure of the crowd. And so in places where you have had these uprisings or these call outs kind of tamped down, it's almost always been because the rest of the staff has said no. This is this is not what we're here to do. There was an, ex- an example of this happening at Sunrise in because June of 2021, where a high-ranking um, black employee left and and made and was fired actually, and, and made uh, lots of public allegations about racism at, at Sunrise, and the you know the head of Sunrise, uh, Varshini Pre- Prekash, kind of pushed back and said, "Look, love you." Uh, you didn't show up for work for three months, and we tried to get in touch with you. Like, this is not about race. That, you know, a public pushback is a part of what works in some of these situations, but by, by itself, it's absolutely not sufficient. What ended up happening was that every black employee of Sunrise decided to sign a statement, kind of denouncing those cl- the claims he had made, saying that absolutely there is work to be done at Sunrise. Like... It, no, by, by no way saying that Sunrise was perfect on all of these questions, but saying that this, these particular allegations by this particular employee were, were not with merit. And that basically ended it. Fox News tried to have fun with it, as, as Fox News does. The right, New York Post, Fox, the others absolutely love to lubricate these, these crises. Uh, but without the, the, the crowd, without the staff joining in, they don't fly.
3: I think that's a great point. Um and actually not not to put everything on the pandemic, but I think that as we start to leave behind the quarantine and lockdown, especially and go back to work, go back to the office, Jonathan Smucker, who wrote uh, Hegemony How to Great Organizing theorist, told you that yeah that like that in-person organizing is really one way out of this.
1: Yeah, and another executive director said that one thing that he was thinking of doing is having his uh, staff start participating directly in get out the vote operations get them get them out of their houses out of their apartments and talking to ordinary people as he put it you know so many had come straight from college or into their organization and and that there's something about you know face face-to-face interactions with colleagues and also face-to-face interactions with ordinary people you know, who, on whose behalf your organization exists and is fighting as a, as a reminder of of what you're in this for.
3: Right, when you're speaking on behalf of an organization, when you're representing the the goals of the organization, then the tone completely changes. Right. And one thing that might not be clear to people who are looking at this just through the lens of, you know, how can we make our organizations internally just in terms of racial equality something that people might not see is that black leaders and leaders of color are not necessarily immune from this kind of staff criticism and black leaders are themselves are very critical of what's been going on.
1: Right, right. And as, as one uh, put it to me, he's constantly worried about those types of allegations that he said people will say, okay, yes, it's true, he's black, but he's anti-black because he just fired, you know, ex-black people in the, in the organization or you know, yes, it's true he's black, but he's, he's propping up you know, structures of, of white supremacy because that's what's hegemonic in our, in our culture. And it is absolutely true that people of color can participate in, in white supremacy and, and can, can be people who are furthering those types of inequities. That's, all of this is true, which makes this conversation and resolving all of these uh, controversies so much more difficult.
3: Well, also in the example of Guttmacher, it, the staff, which we don't totally know the breakdown, but from the Prism article, it sounds like very majority white staff, at least in Washington, they were the ones who are criticizing the l- new leadership of a of a black woman. So, yeah,
1: and one one uh, black executive director told me, yeah, the the ones who are the most vocal when it comes to race at my organization are white. Like that that is a that is a th- that is a through line, and. Multiple people talked about how oftentimes this is, they're just uh, smuggling in efforts to protect themselves from performance reviews that they are that they're nervous about, and that's when it gets really dicey.
3: Yeah, very uh, very yeah. jaded and cynical.
1: And so Loretta Ross, you know, speaks to this a lot. Actually, interestingly, by the way, L- Loretta has launched a. She said she launched a for-profit consulting firm. Oh, really? She's a
3: DEI consultant now.
1: A, a reverse DEI consultant in a way. That so wh- there, she, you know, she's she's become she's a champion now of this call in what she calls call in culture. That when you have a controversy, when you have somebody offended, when you have something going on, you call it in. And she has an entire paradigm about how you know how you how you resolve those without right,
3: without alienating
1: people. Right, massive call outs and and just blowing up your entire organization. And so a year ago, she saw that this was just getting worse and worse at organizations. And she was like, she as she told me. You know, every C-suite, and we can play that right here, actually.
2: Well, it's just not the non-profit world, though, too, let me be clear. Mm -hmm. I started a a for-profit consulting firm last year with three other partners because every C-suite that's trying to be progressive is undergoing the same kind of call-out culture.
1: I also asked her what kind of pushback uh, she's gotten from people, and this is what she said.
2: The number one thing people fear is that I'm giving a pass to white people to continue to be racist. Mm -hmm. Because most black people say, I am not ready to call in the racist white boy. They think it's a kindness lesson Mm -hmm. or a civility lesson. When it's really a, it it, it is an organizing lesson that we're offering. Because if someone knows, if someone has made a mistake, and they know they're going to face a firing squad for having made that mistake, it's not going to want to come to you and be accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, it's not going to happen that way. Mm-hmm. And so the whole call out culture contradicts itself because it doesn't, it, it thwarts its own goal.
3: So the bottom line is basically that the energy of these groups is a good energy. Like people want to make positive change, but the energy is just being directed in the wrong way
1: well the proof is in the, the output is the proof is in the product the progressive movement institutions in in washington have more or less ceased to function uh they're becoming unleaderable unmanageable and so if you believe that organizations are necessary to obtaining and wielding power then you have to find a way for organizations to be able to function. If you don't want power, then you don't. And so let's, let's end with, like we started with uh, Loretta Ross. In our interview, she noted to me that she was a veteran of COINTELPRO, which was, for people who don't know, that was the FBI scheme, FBI scam, that, in, that would infiltrate left organizations with the explicit purpose of calling out Members of those organizations, and then and then creating uh, enough dissension that they completely became unable uh, to function. Uh, Loretta put it in these terms.
2: And there was Cointelco back then, mm-hmm. so it was part of the. I mean, we had so many people planted within our movements to to use gossip and 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 creation of dissent. Uh, And and as a way to destabilize us from within, I mean, so we not only have the tendency, but we we also were under attack as well. Mm -hmm. I said, as a survivor of COINTELPRO, if you're more wedded to destabilizing an organization than unifying it, part of me is going to think you're naive, and the other part of me is going to think you're a plant. And Mm -hmm. neither one of those is going
1: to look good on you. Well, Nausicaa, thank you so much for being here on Deconstructed.
3: It was great to talk to you.
1: And thank you for the the terrific
0: edit. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part?
1: Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor in chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC bureau chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, Go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon.